We're talking once again to the 2,500-year-old brewmaster. Uh, sir, what happened the very first time you tasted Ballantine? The beer with more spirit to it. I jump two paces to the right. I turn, I turn, I turn, I stop. I go back to the bar. I say to the bartender, whoopee, 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 hello, hello, hello. I ask for another drink of Valentine. I drink it. I jump two paces to the left. I shake his hand. I say, would you cut a card? Any card on the deck. He takes one. I buy another glass of Valentine. I gurgle it and flurgle it. I jump around. I kiss my tonsils for being so happy to have been lucky enough to get Valentine beer into my fizzle or mouth. <laughs> that happens every time you drink a glass of Ballantine. Every time. Sir, do you think I might have just one spirited sip of your Ballantine? I'm sorry. I never lend my Ballantine or my comb. If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Ballantine beer. There's more spirit to it. Gee, I didn't think I'd get on tonight. Here, bring it up a little bit there. Holy smokes. <laughs> oh, wow. I wonder if Bob Considine is going to do a column about what I would have said had I been on the air if we had a strike. It's a good point, isn't it? Most columnists, you know, are a little trivia like uh, plugging showbiz friends, plugging little books that their friends wrote, you know, and all that shit. Very important people. I'm already here. Here we go. to something I I'm, I know is the first time has ever been done in the history of mankind. <laughs> I, it's a, I'm not kidding. It's the truth. Uh, I was... Uh, that tape you just heard was a tape that was made three nights ago when I was in the Amazon River Basin, Skip, uh, many, many hundreds of miles from civilization in an area that is still marked on the Peruvian Air Force maps as unexplored and uncharted uh, that's the phrase they use up on uh, the Maron uh, River uh, far up just above the headwaters of the, in fact this is the headwaters of the Amazon River 
And uh, the sound that I was, uh, that you heard there was the sound of me playing a Jew's harp. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is the first time it's, it's ever happened. Uh, I was playing a Jew's harp with, uh, with a native, uh, really now, I had, that's not a good word, uh, a member of the Shapa, Shapra Indian tribe. The Shapra Indian tribe, which is a tribe of ex-headhunters. And the name of the other musician was Arushpa. And here's the violin that he was playing. I have the violin right here. And it's one of the most uh, unusual, uh, strange pieces of, uh, of musical equipment I've ever seen in my life. It's a, it's a, the natives there have seen, it's two strings. What's that? I can't hear you, Skip. Did he carve it and make it? Uh, what's your question there? Skip wants to ask a question. He's the, he's the musical nut. Yeah, Skip. No, he gave this to me. I'll tell you about that a little bit later on. Uh, I was the first man, he, according to them, who ever came to uh, them as an entertainer. I just came to have fun and to talk to them and enjoy being with them. And we were up there delivering a whole raft of candy to them, which they thought was delightful. You know, for the people who, who uh, probably heard about it here and tell them, oh, what a rotten promotional gimmick and stunt and all that. Whereas, as a matter of fact... Uh, the, uh, the, the the entire thing was done just from the standpoint of the fact that the, the natives never have anybody do anything quite like that for them. And uh, and I, I and tomorrow night, uh, I'm going to do a show down at the Limelight, and I'm going to bring almost all of the stuff that I I got from the tribe and from various other tribes around. That this is not tourist stuff, by the way. Uh, this is the real thing, and a lot of this stuff is the kind of thing that, that many... A, get this telephone out of here. Many a museum... Here, I'll do it. So it's tangled up here, all this stuff. But many a museum would give its eye teeth to have. Uh, some of the things that I got were collected earlier, and some of it uh, is very, very old, uh, were collected earlier by missionaries and people who had been in the, in the area uh, years before. This, as a matter of fact, the thing that I'm holding up here right now, Skip, and I'm sorry you can't see it out there, but one of the most beautifully done pieces of wood carving I've ever seen in my life. And it's, uh, it's, it's an Auka war club. Uh, it's one of the fiercest tribes uh, over the centuries in that area. And this is a club that is used uh, almost like a broadsword. It's used like a broadsword, a combination broadsword and Louisville slugger. This is not the, this is not funny. This is a real instrument and it's beautifully carved. I'll tell you what it looks like. For those of you who can't see it, it looks very much like a Brancusi. Have you ever seen Brancusi's, uh, sculpture? It looks like Brancusi's sculpture called Flight. And its balance is incredible. It's made out of bloodwood, which is a very hard jungle wood. Uh, related, I suppose, to either the mahogany or the teak family. Come on, you want to take it? Hold it. Come on in. Just take it in your hand. You'll feel how. Come on. No, no, I'm talking about you. Come on. Just grab it. You know, don't, don't be, don't be bashful. And, uh, it won't jump. But this, this is a beautiful piece of equipment. And, uh, and I'm going to bring all this stuff down to the limelight tomorrow night. And if you happen to have a chance, uh, to come down there, uh, I'm going to put on a real show about these people. Now, uh, here is a violin. Take a look at this. You're, you love music. Look at that. I know you've got to go, but, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, this Just because those crummy newspapers are out of business, we're going to die because of it, huh? Yeah, you want to hear him play this violin? Now I have, I'm going to play a recording for you of Arushpa 
who was a 16-year-old boy playing this violin, which he carved out of a single piece of wood. And it's a copy, a very crude copy of a European violin. They have seen European violins somewhere along the line. And they copied them in a kind of strange, distorted way. And up here, it's just a two-string instrument. Listen. See, I'm, I'm plucking it. It's, and it's tuned. It's tuned. Uh, wait a minute. There it is. See, it's tuned. It's... Now, there's just two strings. And as his bow, he uses a piece of, of fiber taken from a palm tree. It's a strong fiber, a thin piece of wood, just a tiny piece of wood. That's all right, don't worry about it. It's a tiny piece of wood, and he has, as, a, as his bow strings, the strings, instead of using gut, he uses pine, uh, a palm fiber from the leaves. You know, the leaves are very fibrous. And he dries them and takes these little palm fibers, and they're very delicate, and stretches it across this tiny piece of wood. And he, he holds the violin down here around his rib cage, way down below like this, and fingers it with his left hand. And the music he produces out of this instrument is tremendous in its complexity. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to wind this tape back here so that you can hear some of it. You want to hear... That was me playing with it, and and the and when I started to play with them at the Jews harp, the entire tribe practically went out of their skull, and they loved it. And incidentally, they automatically liked the Jews harp better than any other instrument I had with me. I had a kazoo and I had a nose flute, primarily because the Jews harp sounded very much like their instruments, which, as you can tell, listening to, uh, are in a very peculiar uh, tonal range. They they have a pentatonic scale, which is a five note scale. And if I can find this thing on, on the tape here, I'll play you. I see. Ask him where he learned how to play it. Now, I'll send it back here. You hear me talking to him there? You want to hear their language a little bit later on, what they talk like? There it comes. Listen what he gets out of this thing. This little two-string violin, and he brought it out very shyly after I had been playing my instrument. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are wondering what you're listening to, this is Gene Shepard. And I just returned yesterday, uh, it was 1 a.m., 2 a.m., something like that, yesterday morning, uh, from the headwaters of the River Amazon, uh, far back in the Peruvian jungles. And I'm not, by the way, appearing here as an anthropologist or an expert on the Indians. I'm just telling you what I heard, what I saw, what I felt up there. And I spent time and lived in the camp or the chakra, which they call it, which means their living place. Uh, the word really doesn't have any uh, parallel in our language because we use the term house. Uh, but they don't have a word like that. And it's chakra, which means living place. It's just a little clearing in the jungle where they grow uh, their few little vegetables that they can grow. They grow things like bananas and they... Now, when we think of that, of course, you immediately think, gee, they have fields. But no, it's not quite like that. It's just a little clearing in this impenetrable jungle. It's fantastic jungle. And by the way, it's one of the deadliest jungles in the entire world uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of uh, well, many things, from the standpoint of wildlife and, of course, the standpoint of, of uh, disease, which is rampant in the area. And the, the, one of the worst things about this area in this particular jungle is its incredible humidity. 
the humidity is just unbelievable. It's, it's usually around 98 or 99. And as a matter of fact, what's interesting is that as you walk around, you can hear the water just continually dripping as it condenses on the trees. Even though it's not raining, you just hear a steady drip, 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 drip. And as you breathe in, you breathe in uh, a kind of water. You're not breathing air, and it's hot. It's, uh, the temperature is usually 95, 97, 98. It rarely hits 100, though, but always remains about that temperature. And you hear millions of insects going continually, day and night, and jungle birds off in the darkness somewhere. And they have a, they have a, uh, a word there among the people there that the, that the louder the sound, the smaller the bird. And you'll hear some bird going, and he's a little tiny thing, about half the size of a parakeet. And you can hear him echoing all over the jungle, this little itsy-bitsy thing. <laughs> little tiny, beautiful jade green birds and little yellow birds. And, and uh, as you walk through the jungle, you hear this sound of these, of these birds, all types going uh, and, of course, then there are night birds. Uh, when, the, when the sun goes down, another shift comes on. And another crowd of birds start working. And they have different, kind of, different sounds. There's, there's one that goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And it just creeps that up all night long, letting the neighborhood know that this is his, this is his turf. And uh, he's about the size of your thumb. And he can be heard over a mile and a half, something like that. But... Uh, Speaking of little birds with big voices, this is WOR AM at FM in New York. Hit the button there, please. Hit the button there. Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Just pop and pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller High Life. Brewed from a century-old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. Spectacular, amazing, unbelievable, but true. E.J. Corvette Carpet and Furniture Centers opens its gigantic East Patterson warehouse to the public for the first time with the biggest clearance sale ever. Over 34,000 items, over $2 million in furniture and carpet at 30 to 71% off. Buys like these. Bedding, $9.99. Five-piece dinettes, $29.99. Chairs, $9.97. Four-piece bedrooms, $99. 501 nylon or wool broadloom, $288 a square yard. All these unprecedented savings during Corvette's warehouse sale. Extra salespeople, free parking, easy credit terms. For New Yorkers, less than 15 minutes from the George Washington Bridge by way of Route 4. To Jerseyites, accessible from every major highway. Remember, don't miss Corvette's warehouse sale. East 54th Street, East Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, let's see, that's a big sale from 9.30 to 5 tomorrow, okay? And 9 to 9.30 on Monday. Well, it's a long commercial. <laughs> it is. It sounds long. <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of... Do you want to hear more about the, the uh, Headhunters? All right, I'll play the... Uh, I think I've got this queued up here for you. 
I, I recorded, for those of you who wondered technically how I did this, I have a little Swiss recorder. I, I wanted something that would be easy to carry. Am I glad I didn't get a bigger recorder, which would have given me better quality, a, a, a newer or something like that. But the quality is pretty good on this. And uh, I carried this little thing in on my back, a big pack on my back. We went in about a mile and a half in from the river over this uh, almost impassable trail, uh, walking over logs and through the trees and... It was just a tiny trail. And incidentally, why the trail was so hard to 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 get get through uh, was because Taridi, who was the chief, uh, a, a strange, powerful, strong, a very uh, paternal kind of man. He reminded me a little bit of a combination of of uh, oh, it's uh, let's see, a combination of Khrushchev. <laughs> you know that strength that Khrushchev has, that peculiar sense of humor, that little uh, thing in his uh, eye, uh, a little touch of Khrushchev, a little touch of Stalin, a little touch of Santa Claus, and a tremendous dollop, apparently the greatest fighter the world has ever seen. The reason that he, the reason that he was a chief for so many years, such a powerful chief in the area, was because he himself had personally disposed of all of his rivals. That's the way you stayed to be chief. You, you do not, uh, it is not an inherited job, by the way. It is not an elected job. At least when he became chief, which was many years ago, you become chief merely by braining everybody else who wants to be chief in fair combat. And you wind up by taking his head. And eventually, if you take enough heads, you're recognized as uh, the local, the local big man. No, Ted, I'm not going to read this column. This is a, uh, we we had a column here, and I'm not going to do it tonight, so it's all right. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this uh, this this uh, this chief uh, had invited us back into his area there, and the reason he had that trail it was so difficult to get through from the river to his camp area was because uh, he was afraid he was afraid of people coming in. He was afraid of, of uh, neighboring tribes. And by the way, one of the scariest things I've ever seen uh, personally was when we were about to go to bed. Uh, it's not really bed. You saw, we slept in a, in, a, uh, in a sleeping bag with a mosquito bar over us. They told us not to get your hands near the, the mosquito netting itself. As you sleep, you have to be very careful because the mosquitoes are, are tremendous malarial carrying mosquitoes in the area as well as uh, there was a great fear there of the vampire bats, which we talked about last night. Well, as we went to bed, which was about one or two o'clock in the morning, uh, the the young man who played this uh, this violin, a uh, young, uh, tremendously uh, wiry, short, handsome uh, Indian, his hair is cut in the, in the Prince Valiant style. And they wear they wear uh, beads, great beads all over them, and they wear they wear a, a feathered headdress, which, by the way, I'm bringing down to the limelight tomorrow night. A beautiful headdress made of cockatoo feathers and toucan 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 feathers, uh, usually white and red, with touches of black in it. They're they're magnificent looking people, just incredible looking people. And when he went to bed, he was the last one to leave our little hut to go over to their hut, which was about. 25 yards away he went back into the darkness and took out his ancient shotgun he had an old 12 gauge single shot shotgun and he showed it to me and he just quietly melted off into the darkness they never sleep without their weapons next to them for several reasons one jaguars in the area 
And two, uh, they never know when uh, a neighboring tribe might decide to settle an ancient score. Uh, and they're very serious about it. So if you'd like, now, now about, about one o'clock, after I had played my instruments for them and we had a great deal, and that's all on this tape, which I will play a little bit later on after we played all these instruments, he quietly melted into the darkness and came out with his treasure, this violin which he made about two years ago. And it is carved from a single piece of, of jungle hardwood covered with a thin piece of wood, and it's, it's got strange little markings all over it, and his name, Arushpa. And on the top of it, there carved into the wood is a face, a tiny face with two little blue beads. See him? Two little blue beads as eyes. And it has a nose. And I pointed to it. And he says, Shu Shipish, meaning that's his nose. And I said, well, what is it for? And the interpreter asked him. And he says, oh, it, it sings to you. And it's the face of the violin singing to you. And here is the way he played it. He held it down uh, over his... Uh, over his uh, rib cage, and he bent down over it, and in the little flickering light of that tiny kerosene lamp, which was the, uh, a lamp that they had built, a uh, little flickering light, only light, he played this, and the entire tribe stood around and watched him play it while I was recording it. You can hear it right now. Now, I'll write you. Now, one, two, three, four. Now, make it two. Listen to that. A tiny Think of that. Boy, 
that's really intricate music and uh, highly sophisticated. They use a pentatonic scale. And uh, I found out later that the piece of music he was playing had words, by the way. Uh, it was a, it was a, a piece of music that the Shoplers play, uh, had played for a long time. No one quite knows the origin of the music itself, except that it's tribal music and goes back as long as their ancestors go back. By the way, they have no written language, these Shoplers. In fact, that's the problem of the people who try to count them. Uh, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to say one thing before I go any further in this. Uh, when I left uh, to go to visit these people, I had the usual hip, uh, urban attitude towards the native and the, uh, particularly the un, what we call the unspoiled savage, uh, that, uh, that anyone who went and, and tried to bring any kind of help to them was, quote, uh, destroying them, uh, you know, the, the feeling. And I'd like to say that I came away after having been out there and having been around these natives and, and listened to them talk and watch what was happening and heard things about the other tribes in the area. I came away with a totally different concept, primarily because it is an inevitable problem that civilization will creep in and is creeping in on these Indians. Uh, because there are great oil deposits they have found in the jungles. Uh, they have found great mineral deposits. Gold is found there. There's gold mined in, in many of the rivers that are being panned up in those rivers. Prospectors are there. And that if these men, these people, have no language, have no written way to understand the complexities of the world that's coming in on them, in other words, know how to read and how to write, uh, they will be totally destroyed just like we destroyed ourselves many, many tribes in the West when we moved West. And these people are trying to prevent that by giving them a language that can be preserved so that a thousand years from now, somebody will still be speaking Chopra and somebody will be writing in Chopra and their literature can be preserved and they will have a way of dealing with civilization when it comes in on them. Of course, not only that, they take to them... Uh, uh, something which is of inesp inestimable value to the Indians, and that's uh, medical aid. Uh, we, 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 you know, it's, it's, you, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I guess I came back changed, you know, there's no question about it. We walk around town, we walk around in our world, and it's, uh, it's unbelievable, really, how much we take for total granted. One thing I learned, uh, out of this experience, which was a tremendously moving one to me, was how resilient and how tough and how unkillable, really, in a genuine sense, mankind is. And even me and you, <laughs> or you and I, uh, I wasn't in this camp 24 hours, and I found myself without qualms, uh, drinking the river water without any question about it, uh, eating the the, uh, the 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 roots and the vines and one thing and another that they dug up and gave us for food, and I and I realized very quickly that if needs be we can survive. <laughs> you know, you really can. And not only that, it's a pleasant survival. It's hard, but uh, it's uh, it's it's done and can be done. But the one thing that kills them is disease. Disease is just unbelievable in the primal state. 
And uh, it's all right for somebody to say, well, don't go in there and help those people because, you know, leave them in their beautiful state of nature. They're really not. They're, they're ridden by terrors that are just, uh, just indescribable, uh, that range all the way from thousands of taboos. Uh, you know, we, we think that religions uh, often uh, limit people. I've heard that said many times, and I'm not religious, by the way, in case you're interested. But we don't recognize the fact that many of the uh, many of the non, uh, I suppose you can say non-Western tribes of this kind, uh, they are fifteen thousand times more limited than we ever are, because of various taboos and superstitions and mystic beliefs and and dangers from each other. Uh, the the killing uh, that that went on among the tribes is is uh, is just tremendous. By the way, I have among other things among my tape uh, collection here. I tape maybe six hours of just sounds and things. Uh, I have a large number of tapes that were recorded just while the tribes were just speaking to it, just sitting around talking. Uh, would you like to hear how they sound when they're just talking? Well, I'll try to I'll try to find the. Uh, just some general chatter here, and uh, it's it's a curious language. Uh, listening to the language, of course, they have sounds that we don't have in our language. Would you like to know something about how the jungle looks? Just a little bit before we hear this, how the how the sky looks and uh, what kind of horizons they have. You know, they don't see very much uh, when you're when you're living in the middle of a jungle because your horizon is about nine feet away. Uh, their idea of what shape the earth is is very interesting. And many of the tribes in that area until a very recent time thought they were the only people in the world. Can you, can you imagine that in the 20th century? Many tribes thought that they were alone in the world and this was the world. <laughs> they never thought in terms of, of something being beyond the jungle. Uh, the, the, to them, this was the world, and that kind of abstraction was uh, had, was very complex and had many different uh, different uh, types of uh, twists and turns that it took. For example, uh, the girl, uh, I think I told her on the air last night, didn't I? Uh, she asked uh, one native, uh, one man from the tribe, what he thought what uh, what he thought the earth was shaped like, and he he made in the air. He drew with his fingers. He drew this this uh, pod-shaped thing. It was like a long, thin pod. He thought it was like a flying saucer or something, a long, thin pod like that. And she, she said that she talked to him a while, but she couldn't tell whether he really thought that or whether he had been influenced by people who had told him that the earth was round, but he couldn't totally accept it. So he made the earth a long, thin pod, sort of round, but not round. And she said, they, it's always hard to tell <laughs> just exactly where their ideas come from or whether they're trying to tell you something that you, they think you would prefer them to believe. Uh, and they're beautiful, just beautiful people in a lot of ways. Now, uh, you'll listen to, listen to the uh, people ask whether they're friendly. Well, that's a, that's a peculiar question. This tribe, yes, uh, because this tribe, uh, over the last few years, has come to accept uh, the people who come in to them as wanting to help them. Uh, and so they are very friendly and uh, they're, they're not only very friendly, they're almost embarrassingly so when you, because we're Western and quite reserved, but the, uh, the Indian clasping you, reaching around and putting his arm around your neck and holding you to him 
as a form of greeting, uh, reaching over, putting his arm around your waist, and and greeting you. And uh, this sort of thing is 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 their is their form of greeting. It's a, it's a very physical form. Uh, they uh, incidentally, they're also very addicted to ritual. Of course, this is true of many of the. Uh, many of the more primitive people, uh, for example, ad agencies are tremendously addicted to rituals of one kind or another, meetings. Uh, we have here at WR a, a Monday meeting at the sales department. Of course, it's a ritual. They all sit around and little tom-toms are brought out and they beat the little drums and they bring up their various shamans and they discuss the various devils that are after them and they, they pray to the various uh, spirits that are about to destroy them or they pray to the spirit they hope will help them, Mr. Leader. And uh, it's, a, it's a ritual, literally a ritual. And later on, when you ask one of the salesmen what happened at the sales meeting, he shrugs his shoulders and, you know, it's a ritual. <laughs> and nobody really thinks what happened. It was good that it happened, that's all. And so the natives uh, also, like their brothers in the ad agencies and in the sales department, are great believers in rituals. And so whenever there is a greeting, uh, they rarely greet you in less than a half an hour. And they make a speech, uh, a long speech. And, and Tadidi stands straight as a ramrod and he wears his, his big headdress. And, and you know, it's funny, uh, after you've uh, heard about people like this, uh, maybe you've even heard this Tadidi who was interviewed on Barry's show. One time he was on the Ralph Edwards show sometime ago and they flew him here. Yes, he was flown out here. He has no concept of what the city was like. And you talk to him. You know what he said about that? I'll tell you, one of the funniest lines is his comment on, on, uh, on civilization. He said, uh, he said, you know, he said they have all these places, all these stores. He used the native word for place where things are, see. He says they don't have any word for store, of course, but he says they have all these stores and they have beads. They have all these beads. Beads meaning wealth, of course. He says they have all these beads. They have all these things. They have all this, uh, all, all, uh, all the wonderful things they have there. But you know what they don't have? And this is what? He says, can you imagine everywhere they have these stores? They have everything there. But it's, it, you can't believe it. The, the, or the, the uh, interpreter says, what? What? What are they? He says, you can't believe it. They don't have, they don't have no monkey meat. <laughs> now that was his idea of saying, you know, these people think they've got everything, but the poor fools, they haven't even made it. Because to him, the prime, the greatest delicacy was monkey meat. He loved monkey meat, and he couldn't see why they didn't have monkey meat at the D'Agostino. Uh, <laughs> which is true, you know, when you stop to think about it. That they got monkey meat and we got frankfurters. And so uh, who's winning there? It's hard to know. I, myself, I tasted monkey meat and I found it quite tasty, although I had a vague feeling that I was chewing on some, some far-removed ant or uncle, you know. <laughs> After all, if Darwin is right, uh, you know, there's something to it. Uh, but by the way, before we go any further, I, I'd like to... Oh, you want to hear a little talk of the tribe? Listen, I'll just see what... I'll just at random uh, throw on the tape and you... I don't... I think it's based on your personality. I have a suspicion I'll be related to monkeys. <laughs> the reason I said that at that point, if you hear that bonging here, is one of the kids uh, had put the microphone and concealed it. They didn't know that they were being recorded. And one of the children was banging on, on a, 
uh, I think it was a, some kind of wooden bowl that was hitting against the microphone. I later took it away. Listen, ask them if they have any little monkeys in the thing that in the bowl. I'll have to go back. See, I was talking about monkeys there. They brought out a little monkey for me to see at that point. Their pet. You never think of Indians having pets, uh, headhunters, and their pet was a little gray monkey, which is kind of ironical because they practically live off monkey meat, but it was a little gray monkey who walked around the chakra just like the rest of the kids. He just hopped around, and the kids would stand, and they'd give him something, and he'd, he'd grab them by the hand. They, they walked around holding his hand, and he was, <laughs> he was about as big as most of the children. He really wasn't a very little monkey, but there were very tiny kids. And so they were all mixed up together. I, uh, have you wondered at all about uh, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, walking around and things that are done in in a native compound? Incidentally, to, to people listening, I suppose think in terms of a native village. This is not a village at all. They don't have villages in this tribe. Uh, they live in a family unit, which is about maybe sixteen or seventeen people. It's usually an old grandmother type and a couple of wives. They're they're uh, by the way, they are, uh, they have multiple wives. Uh, they are, have polygamy there, and uh, a man as a chief, although Tariti, since, his, uh, since he has become civilized, he has forsworn that. And uh, he has one wife named Irina, a curiously Russian name. And uh, although they probably never heard of Russians, but he nevertheless, uh, her, her name is Irina. And they have children, and of course they have two or three nephews living with them, and there's a lot of rabble, just people sort of hanging around, chickens. There are two or three tropical birds that have been uh, domesticated that walk around with... Uh, uh, and and, and uh, it's just a, a great big happy melange of people. And here's what they sound like. <laughs> Yeah, aren't they though? Hear him humming? One of the kids? Well, this has been a great. I'm going to go back even earlier. I don't know why I keep picking the dead spots here just automatically. But, uh, you're finding this interesting? <laughs> well, tell him I'm happy to see him, and I hope he enjoyed it. Uh, well, you tell him good night for me, and we'll play. We'll have more fun tomorrow. See, he was going to bed. One of them was going to bed, and he kept saying, "I like you." He kept saying, "I, I want to stay and I want to be with you," but they were taking him off the bed. <laughs> and so he was a little kid, and uh, finally. <laughs> Why should I be? Well, you tell him, tell him I'll send him so, so Now, he was learning to play the nose flute at this point, and uh, he was fascinated by the sound of it and by the feel of it. He couldn't understand how you could play something with your nose. And they were delighted. Now, I'll play a little bit of this uh, entertainment that I did. <laughs> this is me entertaining the natives there. We'll hear him giggling. <laughs> 
Well, if only men with beard can do that. Do you find this interesting? Uh, uh, I have some tapes. Of course, none of these are edited, and that's probably why you're you're probably confused out there on how I'm just throwing these things on. But none of them are edited. I just brought them in. Now I took them out of my bag this morning and played a few of them. And I want you to hear the sound of the chief speaking now. Uh, he's he he made a few comments, and he he was standing back like a father, you know, all surrounded. By the way, before I go any further, I have a couple of little commercials here. Let's see, what do we have here? Home study? What's this home study thing? Let's see, if you're 17 or over and you had to leave school before getting your high school diploma, we have a note here. Call MU7-9000 right now and they'll tell you how easy it is to complete your high school education at home. And this is a thing run by the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's a division of them, so it's very official. It's MU7-9000, or if you prefer to send a card, just send it to high school, W-O-R. The number is MU7-9000. And let's see, what else do we have? Uh, Playboy? Me. Limelight. Uh, 5830. I don't know what all that means. Uh, so, uh, one more thing I would like to point out here is that I'm bringing uh, down... Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm bringing down uh, tomorrow night at the limelight, I'm bringing down a whole lot of these things that we got from the tribe. And if you can get a reservation down there, I'd love to see you down there. I think I'll even wear my, I think I'll wear my jungle costume. Shall I wear my jungle costume? You have to wear there. You have to wear a certain kind of boot uh, that has to do with snakes and things. And I'll come down there looking like Frank Buck. And uh, <laughs> uh, this has been a great experience for me. And I, I, again, would like to thank all the people who made it possible. Uh, the Luden's Company. Well, let, me, let me tell you, some, next, Luden's Candy. They make Luden's Cough Drops. They sent us there to give the natives 500 pounds of candy. They went out of their skull. You should have seen them. There were guys running around throwing Fifth Avenue candy bars in the air, yelling and hollering. One little, one little kid, the mother came up and, and said to the interpreter, she was looking real worried. She had a little kid by her hand, and she asked the interpreter, she says, he ate the whole box. Will he die? Will he die? <laughs> He'd eaten the whole box of Luden's cough drops. Just popped them down one after the other. But they loved it, and we had a great time, and it was not done as a promotional gimmick, incidentally, for Ludens. Uh, that's another story. No, it wasn't. Seriously. Uh, it really wasn't. And among other things we get, why? Well, I'll tell you next week, if you care to hear. It was a, one of those strange, believe it or not, stories. Ludens had no idea there were even such people called the shop press, so they weren't, <laughs> they weren't down there to promote Ludens cough drops with the headhunters. They don't have much need. They got a lot of sore throats once in a while, but not. And another thing, you should see the the uh, the great moment when they all put on their T-shirts that had big block L's on them. <laughs> oh, what a time! I'll tell you, I'll never forget it. We'll see you tomorrow night at five minutes past ten. Keep your knees loose and to keep your doors shut. Look out for the bats. <laughs>